Amen. Well, there's this ancient story called Pilgrim's Progress. Has anyone read this book before by John Bunyan? It's the story of a pilgrim fleeing from the city of destruction. The pilgrim realizes that as the story goes on, that this city of destruction is doomed and he needs to escape. It doesn't take him long to learn that he has to go through what John Bunyan calls the wicked gate to enter the road of the celestial city. And you'll kind of see the city in this ancient painting. But what you'll notice about the wicked gate is there is literally only one way through. It's surrounded by water and on the other side, hills and mountaintops that you cannot climb over, but it is one way through the wicked gate. This this gate is a kind of gate, of course, that is surrounded by all sides. There's no third way in. It's through this gate or it's back to the city of destruction. And this is what the first couple chapters of Psalms is all about. It's the wicked gate into a life of praise and worship. It's like when Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, he says this, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And you might be saying, well, this sounds incredibly narrow. And it is. Yet on the other side of this narrow gate, there's tremendous space of grace. And that's what the pilgrim is looking for. But the warning is in this narrow gate that it can also be faked. We can fall under false ideas that the way to the narrow gate is one way when really it's the other. And let's be honest today, a lot of us can find ourselves in a Christianity that is not the way of Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's a form of Christianity that is not the way of Jesus. And what the psalmist and what Jesus' words are telling us is there is one way to the Father. There is one way to the celestial city, to the new heavens, and to the new earth. And the psalmist today in Psalm 1 is saying to you and to me, there is one way through the gates. And the Psalm 1 is not only saying there's one way through the gate. Psalm 1 is literally the gate into the rest of the book of Psalms. And we're going to get into that here in a minute. It's literally... What Psalm 1 is trying to do is what David said later on in the book of Psalms, to search me, O God, and know my heart. It's the kind of invitation that says, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. There is a way that's wide that will lead you to destruction, and there is a way that lasts that is narrow. And according to the psalmist, the way through the gate is choosing the way of permanent delight. 
Now this sounds like, to you and to me as the modern people, as modern people, uh, like just do what makes you happy, right? I say permanent delight, this is the way that the psalmist is saying to go through the gate, and to, to our modern mind, this, this means, okay, just do what makes you happy. But I love what Carl Truman says, and he pushes against this thought. The nature of happiness has changed over the years to become akin to an inner sense of psychological well-being. Once we start thinking of happiness in those terms, the vision of the Christian life laid out in Paul's letters, he says particularly in 2 Corinthians, becomes incomprehensible. We may not all be explicitly committed to the prosperity gospel, but many of us think divine blessing in terms of individual happiness. This is the result of the psychological therapeutic culture seeping into our Christianity. There's a way of Christianity that is false. As one theologian said, in such a way, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. See, if the enemy can get you to deny God, he will do everything he can to get you to believe the wrong version of him. And my fear is that we are redefining what real happiness is and we're turning us inward rather than Godward. And we're settling for a cheaper version of grace, a cheaper version of happiness disguised as beauty that produces nothing less than death. And so what the psalmist is doing is he is bidding for you and for me to choose the way that lasts to choose the way that lasts. Let's read Psalm 1 again. He says, blessed is the man. Now that word blessed means permanently happy. If you open that up or you double click on the word blessed, it means permanently happy. So permanently happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. God is giving you everything you need to fulfill the creation mandate. And that's what he's saying is permanently happy is now you can do all that God is calling you to do, all that he intended for us to do. And so the first idea is that delight develops into meditation. Delight develops into meditation. The person who is blessed is the person who lives under the direction of God's word, and because of that, you are protected from being influenced by the ungodly. Now, as I've said before, this psalm sets the tone for the rest of the book. It's meant to prepare our hearts for war and for worship, amen? And it's the gateway into this book of 150 chapters, and it's a petition for the nation of Israel and for you and for me to embrace the law or the Torah or God's word for living faithfully, now that word Torah, I love this word Torah, because if you open that word up, it means to hit the mark. That's why the psalmists talk a lot about arrows. 
It's like, uh, it talks about how kids are an arrow that as a parent, I'm meant to release into life. What I'm doing is I am teaching them to meditate on God's word day and night, to meditate on the law and the ways of God, and I'm launching them into life, and by God's mercy and grace, they hit the mark in life. In other words, meditation is a fixed mind. I love what the ancient uh, reformer John Owen says, it is distinguished from the study of the word wherein our principal aim is to learn the truth or to declare it unto others. And so also from prayer, whereof God himself is the immediate object. But meditation, he says, meditation is the affecting of our minds and hearts with love, delight, and humility. Now, real quick, the, the book of Psalms is, is comprised of a few different literary styles. And some of the Psalms give a moral instruction. Some give ethical instruction, directing people's or God's people to uh, live faithfully. Some, uh, some Torah Psalms commend law as a source of this authoritative uh, instruction. But what we see in Psalm 1 is both. And that's, it's called a didactic Torah Psalm. Try saying that one, one more time, right? Didactic Torah Psalm. And it's revealing to us how to live faithfully to God under his authoritative word. And so if you read Psalm uh, verse two again, it says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, a didactic Torah Psalm, right? His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates on it day and day nights. But then it says this, he is like a tree planted by the streams of living water and it yields its fruit in its season and the leaf does not wither. Now go back to Psalm 1. It says, he who walks, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, we don't use that language much anymore, but what is a scoffer? A scoffer are those people that will make you laugh at sin and turn away from God. Someone who sits with the seat in the seats of scoffers is a person who settles into sin in stages. So this is how it works. He walks past it. Then he walks back. And he steps to look, and then he stands. And it begins first with standing, and then he finally sits down. And then he's influenced by the sin and by sinners. And he he sins. And next thing you know, he tolerates it. And then next thing you know, he meditates on it. And next thing you know, he identifies with it. In our day, sitting in the seat of scoffers is literally scrolling on Twitter. And we stop on it. We go back. We read it. We sit with it. We meditate on it. And next thing you know, we're identifying with it. 
And if you sit long enough, you become convinced they're scoffing. And this is, and this is why we see and why I've seen within this past month, I kid you not, fellow pastors turning from God, turning from biblical views of marriage, because the longer you spend in a seat of scoffers, scrolling on social media or watching YouTube clips, the more you walk in their counsel. And the reality is that everything starts with these deceptive ideas or these lies we believe about reality, these mental gaps that come from the devil, not Jesus, and they lead to death, not life. And these deceptive ideas get us as far as they do because they appeal to our discord and our desires of the flesh. And then the world comes in to complete the three enemies' circular loop. Our disorder in the three enemies is the flesh, the devil, and sin. And our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society which functions as a kind of echo chamber to the flesh. It's a self-validating feedback loop where all, we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. And what the psalmist is doing is something very intentional. He's showing us the blessed life in contrast to the way of scoffers, to the way of sinners. The contrast reveals, it's revealing how to fight against that self-validating feedback loop that I just talked about. And it, it goes like this. So the way the righteous is in, in uh uh, verse 1 through 3, the way the wicked is in verse 4 through 6. Check this out. So if you read verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor in the seat of scoffers. Then in verse 4, the contrast, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff in the wind that drives them. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates it on it day and night. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. He's contrasting between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And what the text is saying is that humanity, according to verse one, is wired for delight. And if we're wired that way, then we are going to seek the way of delight or happiness. Happiness is, is what we're created for. In fact, the Trinity delights in each other. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit delight in each other. And then God created us to delight in him and in, in each other in our relationships. To participate in delight is to participate with the triune God. Amen? Jonathan Edwards says, God created man for nothing else but happiness. He created him only that he might communicate happiness to him. But the problem is that we have repackaged happiness to reflect our personal desires. How many times do you and I put happiness and holiness at odds with one another? The beautiful thing is that God loves us so much that he calls us into both, coupling them together and calling us blessed. And according to verse 2, when his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, delight determines the direction of our lives. 
delight determines the direction of our lives. God blesses the man who is intentionally creating the rhythm that prioritizes his life around scripture meditation, which is one of our apprenticeship practices, and the woman who doesn't just fit into the mold of cultural streams. The psalmist is saying that the person who stays in the ways of the Lord, who hits the mark, is planted in health and is always growing. And the first two Psalms, uh, which I love, are a reflection of the Torah. One commentary said, it's the Torah in miniature. It's the Torah in miniature. And the writer is using Genesis 1 and 2 type language to describe what meditation for the believer looks like. In verse 3, he says, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water and its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all he does, he prospers. Now, I think I have a picture of a tree in case you haven't seen one before, this is what it, this is what it looks like. <laughs> uh, but notice it's alone, and yet it is vibrant. It is vibrant. In wisdom literature, the tree is a metaphor for wisdom itself. You can find that in Proverbs 3.18. It says, she is a tree of life. She, talking about wisdom, is a tree of life to those who hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The word stream literally means canals. And so a tree intentionally replanted near not one but seven or several irrigation canals with life-giving water, as you can see up there. It's a picture of a person who develops the regular practice of Scripture meditation. And Scripture meditation is the action that moves you and I away from the distracting voices that push us out of God's way. The psalmist uses garden-like language, as you can kind of see here. Um, it describes the result of scripture meditation. It works like a tree being replanted next to a stream. And as I was digging, I was like, this really sounds like Eden-like language. And if you go to Genesis 2.8, it says this. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed on the ground, and the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. On the ground, the Lord caused to grow. The places Adam in the garden where he's meant to flourish. Scripture meditation is replanting our roots in Eden. Now, of course, this is not literal, but God's redemptive story is a God on mission to restore creation to its original intention, to replant in what God originally intended for you and for me, and then to look forward to the day when you and I will stand face to face with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth, and all we can do day after night is declare that Jesus Christ is King and Savior and Lord, and there is no more sin, and there is no more death, there is no more disease, amen? It's the picture of a tree transplanted in place next to an irrigation system where it receives this overflow of nourishment, of scripture meditation, making it strong and stable and able to produce fruit. 
Healthy roots produce vibrant leaves. And you know you've been rooted in God's word when the winter comes and you still have healthy leaves. But we're too busy to be a transplanted tree. How many of us, our roots are in God's word and in the world at the same time? See, what delight means to do is delight inclines the heart. Delight inclines the heart. John Owen again describes this as the inclination, the disposition and frame of all affections so that the heart adheres and cleaves unto spiritual things. From the love and delight in them, he, in them and an engagement unto them. And here's my question is, does what the Bible says about God match the values you live out for God? Because if we go back to the idea that Psalm 1 is the gate into a life of praise and worship, a life of scripture meditation, then in Revelation 3, we have to go back because Jesus gives us a warning. And in Revelation 3, to the church in Sardis, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive. But then what does he say? But you are dead. This church has no problem with life in the world. They're named being alive. They got programs. They're active in the community. They're an active church. But Jesus says, not really. You see, again, there's a radical reversal of values. The churches in Revelation are kind of an interesting bunch, aren't they? They're faithful apprentices of Jesus living as citizens in New Jerusalem, and then there's a destructive accommodation to the values and dynamics of fallen Babylon. In other words, Jesus is calling out the church that appears faithful, who are heavily active in their community, and yet adopted the values of fallen Babylon. And so the narrow gate forces the question, are we sacrificing being in Jesus for being busy for Jesus? Are we sacrificing being in Jesus for being busy for Jesus? The Pharisees did. They were the CEOs of the Torah, right? And yet, what did, what did Jesus call them? What did he say to them? You guys remember? Woe to you, teachers, of the law and Pharisees. And what does he say? He uses the harshest words for them. You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything is unclean. Church, we need to be careful that we do not adopt the values that appear loving, but their roots are in the values of fallen Babylon. We need to choose the way that lasts. The psalmist goes on. He says, the wicked 
Again, contrast to the blessed man, and he says, uh, you know, is a tree planted by the streams of water, but he says, the wicked are not so. They're like a chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's using that contrasting imagery. The wicked aren't permanently happy is what he's saying. They're rootless. And they're always chasing something. The life of self-directed, chaff-like lives is what he's saying. Now, when you harvest something, when you harvest wheat, and there should be a cool picture of it, just in case you guys haven't seen wheat before, uh, here it is. Um, But, you know, when you harvest wheat, in order to get the kernels separated from the husk, you need to pull them off or away from each other, right? Has anyone done that before? Um, You know, even on a hike or something. You need to pull them away from each other. And when it's separated, the chaff would be thrown into the wind, just like you see in the picture, into the wind and the kernel back into the ground to grow. And what the psalmist is saying is that the wicked are intentionally separating themselves from planting their lives in God's law, and as a result, they're blown away in the day of judgment. Malachi uses this same imagery to talk about the end of the the wicked on the day of the Lord, both, he says, will be like stubble and to a tree consumed by fire from from root to branch. The psalmist is saying chaff-like people are useless and wicked and God will deal with them. And like a harvest, cast the chaff to the afternoon breeze so the Lord will drive away the wicked. And this is where we need to ask God to search and to know my heart because we can easily say with fists held high, yes, God, blow them away, get them, right? Kind of like those David's prayers where he talks about, you know, getting them in the teeth and all that sort of stuff. We can, we, can, we can act like that. We can think like that. Yeah, God, blow off the wicked in the afternoon breeze. Show them while we sit with our hands held high by the Pharisee, with an, like, a, like a Pharisee with an unrepentant heart. It becomes easy for us to be self-obsessed in times like these and even feel a sense of victimization because we become so narcissistic about our culture. Am I tired of the sin? Yes. Do you guys agree? But we need to say, God, search me and know my heart. Because we can become so self-obsessed with the times. It's like when I stub my toe. Has anyone stubbed their toe before other than me? It's like when I stub my toe. What happens when you stub your toe? All you can think about is the stinking toe, right? All you can think about is the toe. It consumes me. Church, we cannot become so consumed by the wickedness of our day that it drives out the triumph of Christ over evil in our minds. 
How many times do I, I'll just be honest, scroll on Twitter and see things, and I'm like, God, when are you going to return? And I become so self-obsessed, and that's a good prayer to pray, by the way, but I become so self-obsessed, so obsessed with the evil in the world, so angry, so frustrated, that I forget that at the end of the day, Christ has already triumphed over evil, and the story has already been done, and it's been won, and that's what we're headed to, Amen. I remember when I was, uh, years ago, um, a lot of you know my story uh, about church planting, and I was getting ready to plant a church in Arizona. We had everything figured out, everything was in order, and all of a sudden, uh, the leadership I was a part of did a 180 on me, and I decided, okay, this is, this is unhealthy, I'm gonna have to go. And I resigned, and I said, God, I don't know what's next but I'm gonna trust you, and so that's what we did. And a few months later, I hear that there were some things publicly said about me were, number one, untrue, and number two, incredibly hurtful. And I remember crying in my friend's basement because we had to live with some friends at the time because the ministry, you know, you're not getting rich over it, right? Um, and I just... We had to live with them. And I was thinking of all the tweets, all the things I could post, all the things I could text, all the things I could say, who I could call. And I just remember God quietly, I believe, telling me this, saying, quiet integrity and the final victory is mine. See, when we incline our heart and we fix our minds on the truth of God's word and allow it to shape us to the point that now our delight is in him, we're able to see past the hurt and past the pain. And we go through the gate that's full of grace. Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So how do you incline your heart and you fix your mind? There's three ways that I wanna give to you that I have learned over the years and I hope and pray they're helpful for you, but three daily rhythms of planting. Number one, it's a repentance coupled with assurance. Now, first and foremost, repentance is you and I confessing that we have messed up, that we have sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. But the reality is that if we stay there, typically what happens, at least in my case, is we stay in our, in, in our shame and in our guilt. And so it has to be coupled with assurance. And so here's how my prayer goes every, every day. Is God, forgive me, and I confess of the sins I know, and I ask him, Lord, forgive me of the sins I don't even know, and make me aware of those sins so that I cannot sin against you. And then I say, thanks be to God for your justification, and I am seen as accepted by you, my king. Repentance coupled with assurance. Next is examination. Examination, 
2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Are you believing a false Christianity? Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Test yourself. And number three, scripture meditation. This means planting our roots in the scriptures. When you plant your roots in the scriptures, there's this brilliant book called um, Gospel Fluency. And I, I love this book because what it, what it does is it shows you that when you plant your roots in scripture meditation, when you plant your roots on God's ways, what happens is you begin to start speaking truth and that becomes your native tongue. It's like uh, my, mom's from, or my, uh, my mom's from Germany, my, my relatives are from Germany, and so they speak German natively. And they think in German terms. But for me, I don't. I tried, but I can't get it. It's a weird language. I love my people, but it's weird, okay? And so when I try to say different German terms that I know, what happens is I'm thinking through English in order to get to the German. And what scripture meditation does for you and for me is it plants our roots in the truth of God's word. And next thing you know, our native tongue, we're beginning to think through the lenses of the Bible. Amen? Through lenses of scripture. And then here's the promise when this happens is you will yield fruit in its season. You will delight in God. You will develop a habit of scripture meditation that is what God uses to settle you and me into our union with him. And the fruit is we abide and we obey and we produce fruit in every season that we can't simply, here's the thing is, we can't simply tell ourselves to stop sinning. Now it's like my daughter when she was three years old, I already warned her so she knows this is coming. Um, It's like my daughter when she was three years old, we were living in Arizona at the time, um, and which pretty much is if you've been in the southwest part of Arizona, anything that on the ground pretty much wants to harm you, okay? So that's just the thing. Um, And I look over at her, and I'm too far away to actually know at the moment like what's, what's going on to make out what she's looking at, but she is like, she is intense. She's looking at this thing. She's like three years old. Cutest little baby ever, all right? She's like three years old, and she's looking at this, this thing. And so I get closer, and I realize she's looking at this small snake. And if you know anything about snakes, I'm pretty sure the small ones are the most dangerous, right? So she's looking at the snake doing this thing, you know, and she's intent on it. And so I, I rush towards her, and I'm telling her, Grace, get away, get away. But she's like, no, this is awesome. And so I grab her, and, you know, kind of like an action movie, because, I, I, you know, I don't, want, I don't want my daughter to get bit. And I'm also deathly afraid of snakes, guys. So I'm also like, this is, this is dad mode coming in. And, I'm t- you know, I told her to get away, but she doesn't, because she had no grasp on the danger she was in. She didn't want to leave it. Now, if that moment I had offered her a brand new doll, which you like dolls, by the way, when you were a kid, and said, come over here, get away from that, she'd be running to me in three seconds flat. Why? Because I offered her something more beautiful, more compelling, a better story. To tell someone to stop sinning, and at best they do it so reluctantly and partially, 
but give them a vision of knowing God in his glory and they'll gladly root out all that gets in the way of their relationship with God, amen? We need to direct our desires that sin falsely satisfies towards that which truly satisfies and liberates. A renewed affection for God is only is the only thing, it's the only thing that will expel sinful desires. And when our lives are filled with vibrant leaves, we yield the fruit. We see gratefulness in seasons of abundance, patience in suffering, faith in times of doubt, peace in turmoil, mercy when you're wrong, compassion and gentleness when you're falsely accused, strength in temptation, humility in leadership, unceasing prayer in all times. And it says, at the end of the day, when you, what we delight in, we want to delight, and delight plants us in the way that lasts. At the end of the day, what delight is going to do, the blessed man is, and what, Psalm, what the psalmist is saying is, delight is going to put us and plant us in the way that is going to last. Choosing the way that lasts starts with looking at the visible to understand the invisible. What am I saying? He's, what, he's saying in verse 3 that a life of prayer and praise begins with looking at a tree. The person experienced in meditation and delight like a tree is rooted so that the wind cannot blow it away. John, is it possible to get that tree back up here? Is that possible real quick? The tree by its streams do well even if there is little rain. This is an image of someone who can keep going hard in dry times. And what the psalmist is trying to do, and as we prep our hearts and our minds, let, let this not just be a new series, guys. As we prep our hearts and our minds for the book of Psalms, what Psalm 1 wants us to do is launch us into a life of prayer and praise by making ourselves not, not more heavenly, but by immersing ourselves in the ancient practice of planting. Scripture meditation is the action that moves us away from the distracting words of the past and pushes us from being uh, attentive into the operations of God's grace. So when we're tempted to believe the voices around you, choose the way that lasts. Plant your roots in scripture. When it feels like there's no way out of addiction, choose the way that lasts. When you can't see through the dark clouds of depression and you just wanna give up, oh, how I know how that feels, choose the way that lasts. When Netflix feels more relaxing than God's word, and the church said, Amen at times, because this is the reality, and I do, I'm just as guilty. We choose the way that lasts. When you don't know if you can take it anymore, choose the way that lasts. When you're tempted to self-medicate, choose the way that lasts. And when sin looks more active than righteousness or more attractive than righteousness, choose the way that lasts. When you're tempted to believe a distorted view of love, choose the way that lasts. When your mind is distracted, 
tempted and you can't find conditions to pray, choose the way that lasts. Let the image of the tree reclaim your attention and put your roots down there and choose the way that lasts. And when we do that, when, when we do that, you and I can say with confidence, I can draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. See, when our lives are planted in delight, it assures us that God is planted on his throne. Amen? So I want to end with this. I want to teach you guys this ancient saying. It's this idea of this ancient saying called Christus Victor. Christ the victor. Sin comes at a radical loss of perspective, doesn't it? But when we forget that God is great, we believe that sin is good and we lose sight. But Christus Victor tells us a better story. It tells us that his atoning work that triumphs over the evil powers of the world and through his atoning work, he rescues his people and establishes a new relationship with God and the world. In other words, at the end of the day, it's Christus Victor, amen? When temptation comes, it's Christus Victor. When I don't feel like praying, it's Christus Victor. When I'm scrolling and it feels like evil is so overwhelming, it's Christus Victor. And we can say, and with the ancient hymn, and I'll end with this, with the ancient hymn, we can say, as a tree beside the water has the Savior planted me. All my fruit shall be in season and I shall live eternally. I shall not be moved, I shall not be moved. Anchored to the rock of ages, I shall not be moved. Though the tempest rage around me, though the storm of the Lord I see, pointing upward to that haven where my loved ones wait for me. When by grief my heart is broken and the sunshine steals away, then his grace and mercy given changes darkness into day. When at last I stand before him, Oh, what joy it will afford just to see the sinner ransomed and behold my sovereign Lord. Father, we behold you. You are good. You are kind. You are gracious. You are merciful. Lord, help us as your church to plant our roots in your word that we may be like Psalm 1 and the blessed man who is permanently happy and delights in your ways. God, help us to reject sin, to reject evil. Help us not to be tempted to sit in the seat of scoffers and to keep scrolling, but Lord, help us to choose the way that lasts. It's in Jesus' name we pray.